we're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, and one of the things that we've been talking about uh, in this series is, you know, that, uh, that, that God's grace, uh, His blessing in our life, uh, the gospel, in other words, is, is really a matter of the heart. It's, it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of externals and uh, performance and religion and ritual. It's really a matter of, of what God is doing in our heart. And so we're doing this series called Enemies of the Heart, and we're looking at different threats to uh, the heart of God and, and our hearts as we receive the gospel in our life. And so today I want to, I really want to talk about one of the biggest enemies of the heart, and that is misunderstanding. All right, misunderstanding as an enemy of the heart. Now let me just, let me just explain what I mean by this. You know, a lot of Christians and a lot of people that attend church today We'll, we'll say this, and you, you've probably heard it if you've been in church a while. A lot of people will say, you know, theology really doesn't matter. What really matters is if you love Jesus. You know, people will say that, uh, you know, theology really shouldn't divide us. What, you know, what, what Christians really ought to do is just focus on loving Jesus because theology doesn't matter. All right, so now there are a couple of things with that that I would want to say in response. The first thing that I would say is this, that when you, someone says that theology doesn't matter, that in itself is theology. And they're saying that their theology matters over yours. So they're really contradicting themselves. The second thing that I would say is this, you guys, theology is the most practical part of your life. And you may think that, they're, you know, that we need to leave the, you know, theology to the theologians, but the reality is, is all of you are theologians because anytime you think about God, anytime you talk about God, you're doing theology. A the, you know, theology is just a word about God. That's all it is. So, so theology is the most practical part of your life because it impacts every single area of your life. How you think about your future, how you think about, you know, death, what your view of your problems are that you're facing right now. You know, your, your marriage, your parenting, your relationship, um, your relationship. So theology infuses every single part of your life and you're drawing on it every day, every, just about every minute of the day. Now, I want you to kind of think about this. Think about this as an example. You know, when you pray, you're drawing on a theology of prayer that you have. And so every time you speak to God, every time you worship God, every time you pray to God, you're drawing on a theology that you have in your mind and in your heart. And I think the question really is, is your theology in line with Scripture? Or is your theology formed by the world and by the culture? And so, and so if your theology of prayer is not lined up with what Jesus taught on prayer, you're going to have problems and that's going to impact your heart. Your prayers are going to be hindered. I, I heard the story of this guy named Big Ed and Big Ed's a kind of a country guy and you know, he was invited to this revival service at this church, and so he was sitting in the back. The preacher was preaching, and uh, he was just, preachers just going at it. And at the end of the sermon, he gave an invitation for people that wanted prayer to come forward. And so Big Ed got up out of the pew, came down, waited in line, and the preacher saw him and said, all right, Big Ed, what, you know, what can I pray for you about? And Big Ed looked at the preacher and said, I need you to pray for my hearing. And the preacher said, okay. And so they, they bowed their heads, and the preacher put his hand on Big Ed's ear, raised his other hand, started just shouting these prayers and just yelling, you know, just praying so loud, so fervently. Finally, you know, after the prayer was done, the preacher looked at Big Ed and said, Big Ed, how's your hearing? 
And Big Ed looked at him and said, well, I don't know. My hearing's not until Wednesday at the county courthouse. So here's the thing. If you misunderstand prayer, it's going to hinder your prayer, right? It's going to hinder it. And even the disciples understood that. That's why the disciples went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Because we want to know the correct theology of prayer. We want to know how to do it in a way that uh, will make it effective and not be hindered. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Luke 11, verses 1 through 13, where Jesus gives the response to their request of him to teach them how to pray. So I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God this morning. So Luke writes this, Now, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you as a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he asks. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened." What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, you know, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. All right, so Jesus answers this question. And, and he basically, you know, he answers it with, you know, by giving them a model to pray. So he gives them the Lord's Prayer, and then he gives them a story. He's like any good communicator, he's going to tell, tell a good story. And he tells them this story of this guy that, that goes at night and knocks on this door, and it's the door of his friend. And, um, you know, he tells him, hey, I've got, I've got company, and I need three loaves of bread. Will you give it to me? All right, so the guy, you know, on the inside, you know, his friend on the inside of the house, he's kind of cranky. It's in the middle of the night. You know, back then they didn't have electricity. So everybody kind of went to bed near sundown. There's just nothing else to do. And then not only that, but, you know, most people, you know, most people back then, if you had a house, it was a one-room house. And then, and then, you know, you're raising a family, you just have one bed or one mat, and everybody kind of slept in the same you know, in the same bed, like, like tent camping every night, right? And so the guy says, I'm not going to give you anything. If I get up, I'm going to wake up all the kids, you know, so leave me alone, go away. And so, and so Jesus is telling the story because he's trying to illustrate a point to us about, about prayer because he knows that prayer is one of the most misunderstood aspects, you know, in our relationship with God. 
And the point that Jesus makes is this, that the guy gets what he asked for, not because he's a friend of the man on the inside. He gets what he asked for because of his impudence, his boldness, his shameless rudeness in asking. And it seems like the point that Jesus is trying to make, it doesn't seem, it is the point, that we need to pray boldly. You and I need to pray persistently. We need to pray shamelessly. In other words, we need to bother God with our prayers. That's the point that he's making here. And even Jesus, as he's talking about this, he's trying to communicate to them truths about how prayer works in the Christian life, and he compares prayer to knocking. Now, when you go up to somebody's house, you go up to your neighbor's house and you, you knock on the door, you're not going to knock one time. What do you have to do? You have to, you have to keep knocking, right? If you knock one time, they're never going to come to the door. They're going to say, did you hear something? Did something fall, you know? No, he, he compares it with knocking because he's trying to communicate a truth to us that we need to, we need to pray boldly, we need to pray persistently, we need to pray shamelessly, and we need to pray regularly that's the point that he's trying to make and you even see this in luke's gospel chapter 18 just a few chapters down you know luke records the story of jesus teaching um you know he luke says it like this and he and he told them this parable so that they would always pray and not get discouraged and not lose heart and he tells the story about this lady that you know that is you know, approaching this judge because she's requesting that the judge would give her justice and he doesn't want to. And he tells her no. And she keeps asking and he says no. And she keeps asking and he says no. And finally, finally the judge says, this woman is wearing me out. And because of that, I'm going to give her what she asked for just to get her off my back. And so the point that Jesus is making is that you and I in our prayers need to pray boldly, persistently, and, and really just shamelessly. So here's what I want to do. Here's, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to just kind of walk you through four common misunderstandings of prayer. Four misunderstandings that are threats to our heart. Four common misunderstandings, bad theologies of prayer, right? That hinder our prayers. You know, as you kind of think about this story and as you, you know, as you, Think about what we've just read. You know, we know kind of the truth on the surface that we need to pray without giving up, right? That that's kind of the point of what he's saying. But there's a lot of questions about prayer that we have. And I think, I think one question about prayer that we have just as a result of this is, you know, you know, if God knows what we need even before we ask and he loves us, why does he ask us to pray persistently and repeatedly and shamelessly? Why? And if we're, if we're supposed to respect and honor and revere God, isn't it, isn't it disrespectful to kind of pester him like, you know, this guy pesters his friend and this woman pesters this judge? I mean, isn't that disrespectful? And, and what about just, the, just acknowledging the reality that you and I have prayed for things over and over and over and over again, and we've gotten no answer to them. So is Jesus saying in this parable that we just need to keep praying? You see, all of those are really good questions, and I think there are answers right in the text for us today. So let's, let's look at the first misunderstanding, and here's, here's the first one that I want to go with this morning. The first misunderstanding that we have is that discipline is the key to prayer. That's the first misunderstanding that we have. 
Now, it's congregation participation time, all right? So I'm going to ask you a question, and I want to see a show of hands, all right? How many of you would say that you need to pray more than you do? Raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? That's all of us, right? Uh, If somebody didn't raise their hand, they didn't understand the question. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just kind of the thing. So so we all know that. That's universal. If I got you one-on-one and I asked you, hey, how's your prayer life? I guarantee you'd say, well, you know, I'm not praying as as much as I should be. You know, I've just been busy, just been occupied, and God's probably frustrated and all that. Um, Do you know that the reason why we struggle with prayer is because we kind of lump it in with, you know, losing weight, exercising, eating right, and getting out of debt. We just kind of lump it into that group, right? And what is the key to those things? Discipline, right? Yeah, you got to be disciplined. So the thought is, man, if I just had a little bit more discipline, then I'd be a better prayer warrior because we really think that discipline is the key to prayer. And, um, and so, you know, that's just, that's just kind of the, the common thing. We're Americans. We're can-do people, aren't we not? What are we told since we're born? We are told, we are brainwashed into thinking, you can do whatever you want, just set your mind to it. You can accomplish whatever you want, you can achieve whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. Why? Because we're Americans, not Americans. That's the American dream. That's our country was founded on that thought. And so, you know, you know, you could, you know, basically you could. You could abbreviate United States of America with DIY, do it yourself. Because we fundamentally believe as Americans, just give me enough time and give me an internet connection and I will figure it out. Am I right on that? That's just the way that we think. The problem with that church is it doesn't square with John 15, 5, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see how the American dream just clashes with with the truth of Christianity? Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing means nothing. And so, you know, as as Americans, you know, our biggest problem when it comes to prayer is thinking we can, we don't need to pray. We can do it ourselves. We can accomplish it ourselves, whatever it is. Just name your it. Now, Paul Miller has written a book called The Praying Life. Church, it is the best book on prayer ever written. If you, need to, if you ever read, you know, one book, you need to read the Bible. But the second book I would tell you, you, you need to read A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Listen to what he says. He says, we tell ourselves strong Christians pray a lot. If I were a stronger Christian, I'd pray more. Well, strong Christians do pray more, but they pray because they realize how weak they are. They don't try to hide it from themselves. Weakness is a channel that allows them to access grace. He goes on to say, an interviewer once asked Edith Schaefer, the wife of evangelist Francis Schaefer, who's the greatest Christian woman alive today? She replied, we don't know her name because she's dying of cancer somewhere in a hospital in India. And Paul Miller says, I'm talking about that woman. Underneath her obedient life is a sense of helplessness. It's become a part of her very nature, almost like breathing. Why? Because she is weak. She can feel her restless heart and her tendency to compare herself with others. She's shocked at how jealousy can well up in her. She notices how easily the world gets its hooks into her. In short, she distrusts herself. And when she looks at other people, she sees the same struggles. 
The world, the flesh, and the devil are too much for her. The result, her heart cries out to God in prayer. Why? Because she needs Jesus. You see, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you guys know that for many years, I pastored this church thinking that if I could just find the right technique and the right strategy and the right model, the church would be healthy and I'd be successful. So I was a voracious reader of church growth books, church growth conferences, the whole nine yards. Because I believed in DIY. I can do it myself. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, it's the same way in parenting. You know, um, many of us in here are parents and, and um, you know, we just, you know, we just devour Christian books on parenting, don't we? Because we want our kids to turn out right because we're looking for the secret sauce. We're looking for the right technique and the right approaches because we want our kids to turn out right. And so we read and we listen and we do all of these things because we're so focused because we want our kids to turn out right. You know, Elise Fitzpatrick is a conference speaker and author. And she says, do you, she says, do you realize that, that God is a perfect heavenly father and one third of the angels rebelled against him and his, the two people that he created, Adam and Eve, both rebelled against him. And we think we're going to out-technique God and what she says is she makes such a great point that we get these books on marriage and we get these books on parenting. We get these books on, 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 you know, on leading your family well when they actually contribute to the problem that says we can do it ourselves. We don't need God. You know, when in reality, we need to be on our face before God asking for his mercy and grace for our kids and for our marriage and for our family. That's what we need to be asking for. Why? Because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. In fact, James 4, 7 says, God opposes the proud. See, it's pride that says, I can do it myself. That I can pastor myself, and I can parent myself, and I can be a husband myself. It's pride that says that. And what James says is God actually opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the hope for my parenting is not my technique. The hope for my, you know, my marriage is not my approaches. You know, the hope for my church is not my ability to lead and pastor and preach. My hope for all of those things are the grace and the mercy of God. And so the point is this. Desperation, not discipline, is the key to prayer. Desperation, not discipline, is the key to prayer. You know, in the story that Jesus tells... This man is so desperate for loaves of bread, he goes in the middle of the night. And he is shameless in asking. He's so desperate for whatever reason. You know, in Luke 18, in the story of the woman, you know, with the judge, she's so desperate for justice. She, she has no other recourse than to get in the judge's grill and ask and ask and ask because she's desperate. And so... I just think you and I would pray more if our eyes were open to the reality of how much we need the mercy and the grace of God in every single area of our life. You're not going to have any problem praying if that's what you see. But as long as you focus on yourself, as long as you think, oh, I got this, yeah, you will never pray. 
because you don't, you think you, you're, you don't think you need to pray. Now, let me just get really practical with this. And, um, you know, obviously it's good if you, if you could take five, ten minutes a day by yourself, you know, in your closet, wherever, where you can pray and be with your Heavenly Father. That's, that's outstanding. You can do that. A lot of people tell me, you know, uh, they, they say, Scott, I, I pray on my, on my way to work, I, in the commute to work, which is really good. Just don't close your eyes while you're praying, okay? Um, but here's the thing that I would say. Just don't stop when you get out of the car. Just pray throughout the day. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, you know, I never pray for more than five minutes, but I never go five minutes without praying. That's someone who's desperate. And that's the key to prayer. And so I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says this, he says, when you, when you feel disinclined to pray, and you will often feel disinclined to pray, okay? He says, let it be a sign that, that prayer is doubly necessary. So when you don't feel like praying, interpret that lack, of fe- that lack of feeling like you need to pray as, oh man, I need to really pick it up, is what he's saying. And then he says this, I love this, pray for prayer. Pray for prayer. If you're feeling prayerless, pray for prayer, and God will give it to you. That's the first misunderstanding. Discipline is the key to prayer. It's bad theology. Desperation is the key to prayer, all right? Misunderstanding number two, God is my boss. This is a big one. Now, what do I mean by this? I would say that most people in the Christian life, most people believe that what it means to be a Christian is we go to God and we, we commit to him to being good people. That's what most of us think about the Christian life. That's what we think. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to go to God and I'm going to tell him, God, I'm going to pray more and I'm not going to cuss anymore and I'm going to give and I, you know, I might even serve you know, once a year and God, I'm really going to pick it up. I'm going to pick my game up. And we think, we think that what it means to be a Christian is we're going to be good people. And it's just toxic theology because what it does is it sets up this transactional relationship between you and God. It's almost like this, you know, you're establishing this employee-employer contract where you perform at a certain level and then you begin to expect certain things from God because of your performance. And so as a worker for God and as God is your boss, you know, you fulfill your set of duties, you uh, you. You put your time in at work and you expect to get paid, don't you? You expect to get your fringe benefits and your vacation time. And so when you go to your boss, you don't, you don't, you know, you just, you just treat him as a boss. You just kind of say, hey, you know, I kind of got this coming. I, you need to give this to me. I deserve this. And it's absolutely toxic in your relationship with God because it's all transactional. It's all about you earning and then God delivering what he owes you. It just, just corrupts your relationship with him. Here's, here's, the, here's the point that I think we need to make, and it's this. God's not my boss. God is my father. God is not my boss. He's my father. Now, church, parenthetically, what I need to say here is this. Some of you have rotten earthly fathers. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your perfect heavenly father who's a good, good father. That's what I'm talking about. And that's why Jesus says, when he gives them the model prayer, that's why he says, when you pray, say, our father in heaven. Church, when he, when he gives them that in Luke 11, it's absolutely revolutionary. Absolutely. 
That we are to approach God because he's our heavenly father. And then not only that, but, but even you know, at the end, he talks about how you know, he closes the section about prayer. Talking about God is your father. And then, and then, and then John 1.12, I love this. I love this verse, but to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying this, that what Jesus secured for us through faith in Christ is a relationship with God as a a father. That through the blood of Jesus, he became our father, Jesus became our brother, and you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. So practically what that means is this, that when you became a Christian, something changed. It wasn't your behavior. It wasn't even your character. It was your status before God changed. You're no longer a slave, but now you are, you are a son of God. You're no longer a slave, but now you are a daughter of God. It is, it is now, you're no longer in chains, but you are You are sons and daughters of the Most High. You know what that's called? That's called adoption. And it is one of the key themes in Scripture that you see over and over again that that God relates to us as a father. Now, if that's true, then that has profound implications for how we pray, does it not? We can pray boldly. We can pray persistently. We can pray shamelessly. We can pray repeatedly. Why? Because there's intimacy, there's security, there's love in our relationship with our Father. The biggest thing is there's access. You don't have to go through a priest. You can just go to your Father. Right now I'm reading a book called Three Days in Moscow. And um, so... It's really a good book. It's about it's a book about Ronald Reagan's role in bringing down the collapse of the uh, bringing of instrument facilitating the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's a really good book, and um, man, do I miss Ronald Reagan? Oh man, do I miss him? I'm sorry, that was a political statement. I'm sorry, um, but I really do miss him. Um, anyway, he uh, in the story. There's an arms race. You guys remember this between the, the Soviet Union and the United States? You guys remember that? And so you know they're ramping up their nukes and we're ramping up ours and everybody was really concerned about nuclear war as we should be um and so reagan initiated a summit with mikhail gorbachev and at the first summit in geneva they they met to discuss what what we could do to kind of stop this madness and so uh, and so it's interesting because president reagan's son ron was a journalist covering the summit and all the other journalists were mad and complained you know why because Ron Reagan had direct access to the president, his father. And at social gatherings, they would often be seeing him in the corner talking one-on-one. And the journalist, Ron Reagan, had, had the inside scoop. And all, all the other journalists were really frustrated by that because they wanted that same scoop. You and I have that same access. We can go often into a corner and pray because he's our father. He's not our our our, you know, our boss. I mean, think about this. Do you know, as you kind of think about the implications of this, you remember when you were growing up and you wanted something for your parents? How did you ask for it? Boldly, persistently, shamelessly, repeatedly, right? Until you got what you want. That's praying to your father. 
That's what it is. And that's what Jesus is saying in this. You know, um, in, the, in this parable, I think, it's, I think it's really important that we understand the question that prompted the parable. The disciples asked, how do we approach God in prayer? So they were like, show us how we are to go to God in prayer. So Jesus is not saying in this parable that, you know, that God the Father is like this stingy friend who won't get out of bed. He's not saying that. Because he's answering the question, how do we approach God in prayer? Not how does God approach us? He's not saying that God is like this judge who's unconcerned about justice. What, what, what we know from Scripture is our Heavenly Father never sleeps. What we know from Scripture is he's got the hairs on your head numbered. What we know from Scripture is he cares for you and he loves you. He knows what you need even before you ask. What we know is he not only puts bread on your cupboard for you at home, but he gave you the bread of his torn flesh on the cross for your salvation. That's what we know. That's the kind of father you're praying to. And he's not an unjust judge who doesn't care about justice. He cares in every way. He left the throne of his judgment to give his life as a penalty for the judgment of our sins so that we don't have to experience the judgment. That's the father you're praying to. So you can pray shamelessly and boldly. You know, my kids approach me with absolute confidence in my goodness towards them. You know, they do. Dad, I need a car. Dad, I need gas money. Uh, Dad, I've got a fender bender. Can you get that fixed? You know, of course, yes, we'll, we'll do that. That's how we need to approach God in prayer, right? My kids have that confidence. And I know how to give good gifts to my kids. And even Jesus presses this point. If you, the, are, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your perfect heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? So that's, that's the second misunderstanding. Here's the third misunderstanding about prayer. Well, I prayed about it once. That should be enough. I prayed about it once. That should be enough. And I think as I was kind of thinking this one through, I was thinking, you know, it, this flows out of disappointment of, of really unanswered prayer. You know, God, we prayed about it once or we prayed about it two or three times. And then we, you know, we, um, things have gotten worse. Let's just go that route. You know, you've prayed about something, prayed about your marriage, prayed about your finances, and now you're deeper in the hole financially. And now you and your spouse are fighting even more. And things have gotten worse. And so what do we typically do with that? We just give up discouraged, don't we? We're just like, well, I've prayed about it. Nothing's happening. You know, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And, um, and that's, that's how we approach it. And so... I think clearly, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the point of this parable is that we should pray shamelessly and, and persistently. That God, is, that God is not bothered by our persistence. He's honored by it. And he's moved by it. Let, let me show you this. Look at verse 8. Yet because of his impudence, his persistence, he will rise and get, give him whatever he needs. Luke 18, 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they, they, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so, so that's the point. That we need, to, we need to pray more than once. We need to press in prayer. And we need, to, we need to keep it before God. Now, isn't it true that when your kids ask you for something and you tell them no, how do your kids interpret that no? 
They ask you for something and you say no. How do they respond to that? Oh, they love a challenge, don't they? They're like, that's just an invitation for extended negotiation. That's all that is. You are now, as a parent, you are under siege at this point. And they are not going to relent until what? You crumble right in front of them, right? And what God is saying is this, we need to do the same thing. That's what, that's what we need to do. Now, the question is, well, why? Scott, I don't understand why. I mean, if he loves us and he cares about us and he knows what we need, why does he? Because here's the thing, church. We are, we are deeply skeptical of the goodness of God. As a people, our default mode is to be skeptical of God's goodness. And we're like, I'm just not so sure. I mean, maybe he's good to everybody else, but he's not good to me. And I think what God often does is he, he wants to see, will we lean in in our faith? Will we, will we press him believing in his goodness when we don't always feel it and we don't always see it? And so what he's trying to do is grow our faith. He's trying to grow our perspective in, in delaying the answer to prayer. He's trying to, he's trying to develop the, the perspective within us that he is good. Because I believe in time you will see it so clearly. Even if you don't see it, you know, and so quickly. You know, there's a story of George Mueller. And um, George Mueller lived during the 1800s. He was a he was, a, he was really a Christian social activist, George Mueller was. And uh, so in his prayer journal, he records a time when he made a commitment that he was going to pray for the salvation of five people that he knew in his life. That he wanted to see them come to Christ. And so he made this commitment. And uh, he said, I prayed every single day for those five men. Come rain or shine, you know, come sickness or health. Come out my land or sea, you know, wherever I was. He said, I did not miss a day. I prayed, I prayed for these five guys. He said, it took 18 months and the first guy became a Christian. He said, I prayed for five years and the second guy became a Christian. He said, I prayed for 11 years. We're on the 11-year mark now. The third guy has become a Christian. All right, three down, two to go. At the 36th year, uh, George Mueller records in his journal, he says this, you know, I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. 36 years, the, left, the, the remaining two are, are still unconverted. Well, in 1897, 52 years after he began praying, those two men finally came to Christ, and they came to Christ after he died. Now, what did Mueller know that we don't know? He knew this, that we should always pray and not give up. That's what he knew. We should always pray and not give up. And so that's, that's the point that I think Jesus is making. One more, one more misunderstanding, and it's this. Number four, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. And that church, that's really, really bad theology. Really bad. You know, for the longest time in my own life, I looked at prayer as me telling God what he needed to do and what he needed to give me. That's how I approached it. Uh, God, 
you know, I really know what's best for me and I really need this and I really need that and I need you to come through. And what would happen is when God didn't come through and he didn't give me what I was asking for, I'd get really frustrated and I would get really discouraged in my prayer life. It was almost like I was treating God like a magic genie, if you will, all right, in a magic lamp. And so you rub the lamp and the genie comes out and he gives you three wishes. And so since I know what's best, you know, the genie needs to obey my word, right? And so I'd get really, really frustrated when he didn't. And the problem is, is that shows a misunderstanding of prayer. It really... It really is, uh, in that mindset, in that perspective, prayer is a tool to manipulate God. It's, it's really an exercise where we tell God we're in charge and he works for us. And so the right approach is this. He is our father and he knows, he knows what is best for us. That's why in the model prayer, You know, Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So right at the beginning, we're already submitting to the Godship of the King. Does that make sense? We're we're, we're submitting to the Lordship of the King. Now, obviously in Luke 11, I think Jesus acknowledges that there will be times when we don't receive the answers uh, that we think we should have. That's you know, and he, he gives this example. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him, you know, will give him a serpent. And if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. And so he's asking this question. So if your kid comes up to you and asks you for, you know, for a fish, how many of you are going to give him a snake? None of us, right? If your kid asks you for an egg, how many are you going to hand him a scorpion? None of us, right? We're, we're, we love our kids. We're going to give them good gifts, Right, and if we can't give them what they're going to ask for, uh, we're going to we're we're going to give them we're going to give them what we think is best for them, right? And and uh, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to come through because because as parents, our our kids they they don't know what's best. You know, they don't always know. They're asking for things they think that they know what's best, but they don't know what's best. Usually, parents, we know what's best for our kids, and that's what we're going to give our kids. We're going to give what is best for them. And I think the point is this, that you and I need to pray in faith that God, as my Father, knows what's best for me. We need to approach Him that way. He knows what's best for me. You know, I heard Tim Keller Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, in a sermon of his say, you know, God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. So God often answers our prayers by giving us, you know, what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. Because isn't it true, we think we know what's best, but we really don't know the whole story. We can't see on down the line. We can't see the, the complex network of relationships and circumstances in our life. We need to trust him as knowing what's best. Now, church, I know that that doesn't answer every single question you have. Like when you prayed and your parents, you know, passed away early and, or, you know, you prayed and the cancer has returned. And, and I know that there are, I know that there are some questions that that, you know, that that doesn't really answer. And there's some questions that we have in this world that we're not going to get answered until we step into eternity. 
But I do know this, that, that God is always looking for our best, and he is good. I mean, if anything, just think about the cross. I mean, think about when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Didn't it, wouldn't it from the perspective of the disciples and all of the people following him, wouldn't it be from their perspective, that would have been the biggest scorpion? Why, God? He's done all of this, and now it ends like this? We don't understand wouldn't it seem like to, you know, to the disciples that Jesus dying on the cross would be the, the serpent snake bite right in our heart? But God had a different plan, didn't he? God knew what was best. Even Jesus has experienced the pain of unanswered prayer, right? Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane he said, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew the Father's plan was better. And he submitted to it. And boy, was it ever better. And so that's where you and I need to lean in on God. Now, here's, here's, here's my last question. Which misunderstanding that I've kind of gone through today, what, which one of those represents you in your prayer life this morning? Where do you really need to lean in in prayer in a way that God is showing you right now? What is that for you? You see, he loves you. And what he's doing is he is orchestrating your growth in Christ and your reliance on him, which brings more of his blessing and more of his joy. But you've got to trust him. And you've got to talk to him. So pray boldly, pray persistently, pray shamelessly. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We hallow your name today because you're worthy. You're worthy of our exaltation. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our prayers. And we confess, God, you do know what's best. You do see what we can't see. You do see the big picture. And so, God, I pray that you would encourage us, God, that you would give us faith to trust you, to lean in on you, God, to recognize our helplessness before you, to recognize our need for a Savior. God, that we would see that you are truly a good, good Father. Lord, I know that there are those hurting in this room right now. God, would you bring comfort Bring grace. Bring your presence. Thank you we can always call out to you. Thank you that you're always with us. In Jesus' name, amen.